Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Attorney Vincent Davis, and this is Get Your Kids Back Now. This show is dedicated to keeping families together and fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. The secondary purpose of the show is to educate parents and relatives or to at least show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of the show is to remind the people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box at the state and federal levels. Let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes. Good morning. Today's show, we're going to uh, talk about a few things, hopefully take a couple calls. But at 8.30, we're going to have another guest on the show, and it's <clears throat> social worker, or former social worker from Riverside County, Terry Greenstein. Terry has been on the show before, and he's going to be talking today about what you should be doing to address social worker concerns and arguments at the time of the detention hearing. Now, I'm going to give you a little recap of what's been going on with my practice and my uh, representation of people um, in the juvenile dependency courts around the state of California. Um, I recently finished, you know, this is about two or three weeks ago, seems like, maybe more, um, finished a case in San Jose, which is Santa Clara County. And the case was a case where they were alleging that my clients had mental or emotional conditions that prevented her from caring for her children. And the children were placed in foster care, even though there were relatives and nephrums um, that's non related family members who are basically friends of the family who could take care of the children um, around the world. My client had relatives in Canada, in China, and of course she had nephrims here in the state of California. The county, after several, seems like several months, uh, approaching the trial, agreed to place the children with um, some nephrims. And the nephrims were a couple who had retired, you know, middle class, upper middle class, who could take care of the children basically uh, 24-7. Maybe just one of the uh, nephrims was retired. I think the other one worked or worked part-time. But anyway, the children were placed there. And um, in the juvenile court, um, I was asked how many uh, days or hours or units did I need for my trial. And, you know, I estimated maybe two or three days if we went straight through um, for the presentation of my client's defense. And I informed the court, I said, that doesn't include the presentation of a case by the county and by the minor. So after discussion was held, I think we estimated that the trial was going to take six days. That's very unusual for a juvenile dependency case. Um, But in this particular case, there were some complications. There were going to be a lot of witnesses. So that's really what it was going to take. And then the judge informed me that 
she couldn't do the trial, but it had to, since it was a long cause matter, but it had to be sent out, and it was going to be sent out to the civil court, um, which was across the street, and that we would be signed a judge, and that judge would do the case, you know, I guess from morning to to close, and we would, you know, basically finish the case in about five to six court days. So I made my reservations, and, you know, I appeared on the first day for the trial. And when the judge came out, I, I, I don't know how it came about, but or if the county and I had started talking, but we had never really talked settlement in the case. Anyway, to make a long story short, the case settled the next morning without any um, testimony being taken. And the settlement was that my client would have – 10 hours a day, I don't know if it was eight hours or 10 hours, but it was, let's say eight hours, eight hours a day visitation with her children in the morning and in the evening. And the case plan that um, she had was that she had to take, and basically she's going to have to pass a psychological evaluation to show the county that, you know, there's nothing that prohibits her from being, um, parent to her children. And that is in the process of being taken care of right now. The reason why I bring up the story is because if you let the county know that you will try the case, and if your attorney lets the county know that you will try the case, they seem to be a little bit more flexible and trying to come up with a resolution that you and or your client, you know, would accept. Nobody, I, I think nobody really wants to spend six days in trial on a case where the court might order the same settlement that we could have gotten or done at the beginning of the case. So in that case, um, the client's, is happy that she's seeing her children eight hours a day and not happy that they're not in her custody, but we do have a strategy and a plan. You know, it's very, a lot of clients want to go to court and they want to hit a grand slam home run and get the children back right away. Sometimes because of the facts and circumstances and the witnesses, um, you can't hit a ground, a grand slam home run. So you might have to take that single or double and set the case up for what I call a quick and fast uh, reunification of the children with the parents. And that's my strategy in this particular case. I was also um, involved with a case um, in Los Angeles County where I represent the mother and the father is represented by a court-appointed attorney. By the way, a very good court-appointed attorney who I've known for, I mean, not known personally, but we have done cases against each other and with each other probably for the past 20, 25 years. So, you know, that spells the notion that all court-appointed attorneys are bad. Um, I will agree that, you know, I've heard cases where have had serious problems with their court-appointed attorney. But in this particular case, I know for a fact 
that the father is being represented by a very good attorney, and that attorney is fighting hmm, tooth and nail. Well, <clears throat> the allegations against the, the parents were basically um, this case came out of a family law case. And as family law cases go, it was you know, on the side of being a little contentious custody and visitation uh, fight in the Los Angeles County Family Law Court. Then <clears throat> allegations were made um, against the father for um, neglect and abuse. And during the case, my client was being represented by a, a court-appointed attorney. Well, there came a point during the case where my client realized that the tables were being turned on her and the social worker wanted to basically uh, transfer custody and visitation, excuse me, transfer custody to the father. Obviously, um, my client was not happy with that. She found me, and we came up with a strategy where, <clears throat> whereby she would keep custody and the father's visitation, um, you know, the case was turned back around to point the, uh, the allegations that were being made against the father. Times when cases especially come out of the family court, social workers and sometimes juvenile judges look at the case with a different eye, knowing that the case is, you know, one of a contentious custody and visitation battle. And sometimes otherwise credible testimony may be deemed to be not credible because of the excuse me, because of the fear that there is that somebody may have made up a story, told something that wasn't true in an effort to gain custody or an unfair advantage excuse me, in the family law court. So that's what we were facing in this court. We ended up doing the disposition, the disposition hearing, and everything remained the same with the mother having custody. But since then, at every turn, it seems like the father is trying to change orders, get more visitation, etc. And I realized something about the case. The father had a pending RFO hearing, request for order hearing, in the family law case to decrease the amount of child support that had been previously ordered. Now, as I recall, this particular father had made this or filed this when he had much more custody and before the juvenile dependency case had started. So before the client had hired me, she had actually responded to the RFO requesting not a decrease, but an increase because he had far less time. 
excuse me. So the case is on calendar, I think, in a week or two. And the parties are going to court to try to increase and decrease child support. But the main point I bring up, it's my opinion and theory. I might be wrong. The father is requesting this because he is essentially trying to decrease the amount of child support he has to pay the mother. So in cases involving custody and visitation, and usually cases out of the family law court, there may be ulterior motives. Um, And the motives may relate to juvenile dependency cases, or the motives may relate to other things. We're having some technical difficulty right now. I'm going to have to pause the show, and hopefully we'll be back in a few minutes and back by 8.30 to take the call from Terry Greenstein. Good morning. We're back on the show. I think we have Terry on the line. Let me switch over. Terry, good morning. Yes, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? Good. Good. I started. I started the. I started the show this morning. I had some technical difficulties, but I think everything is smoothed out already. Okay. So for the the audience members that have not heard you before, please tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Terry Greenstein. I am a retired social worker from Riverside County with 14 years there. I'm retired. And because of the amount of malfeasance, malpractice, and just around, just all around bad social work, I have decided to help families that were uh, harmed by Child Protective Services by not following policy and procedure. And I just, when they make a mistake, I will find it and go to court and Take care of it. Uh, in fact, I just finished a uh, report for one of your attorneys yesterday. Very good. Uh, without na- naming names, what was that report about? Uh, the, report, <laughs> the report basically was that this is a very small um, county here in California. I won't name the county. But it's a very small and very rural, spread out county. And this particular office only has a couple social workers and maybe a supervisor. So the, that ups the ante for social worker malpractice and malfeasance because they don't have any real supervision. And they kind of get the run of their area. And... Uh, A child was placed in a foster home. Um, The child was medically fragile. In other words, the child was uh, not normal. The child was born drug exposed. Uh, I don't know which drug. I've never mentioned which drug, but I've dealt with drug exposed children for many years. Uh, Number one, when you place a medically fragile child in a foster home, 
The foster home has to be a medically fragile foster home, meaning that the uh, foster parents are specifically trained for to take certain kind of kids. And what happened in this instance is the placing social worker didn't give the foster parents the information, so she lied. First, she lied about the child's age and told her the child was three months when the child was, in fact, three weeks old. And there are multiple, multiple problems with children that uh, are drug-exposed, especially infants, because they're still going through withdrawal. And you need to know what you're doing. And apparently... um, there were a couple of times where the child um, got a little sunburn, and it wasn't much. And, and actually, at that time, the child was going to be removed from that foster parent and moved into another another place. When they came to remove the the, the little baby, somehow they decided to remove the other child that was in the home that the foster parents were in the process of adopting. Why they took the the other child, I don't know. What I do know is that the social worker who is the child social worker in another town asked these social workers to go out and pick up the kids. According to the record, the decision was not made by the social worker, but administration. And this happens quite often. In fact, it happened to me one time, and I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, many years ago, I was uh, on call, standby callback, and about 9, 10 o'clock at night, I got a call from our intake saying that our deputy director, now this is the highest person, The deputy director is ordering you to go to a foster home and remove a child. The child, unfortunately, had cerebral palsy, which necessitated another social worker, an ambulance, and finding a specific placement for this child. The child ended up going to the hospital, but the the scene there was so chaotic, even though I brought a police officer with me, it was a very horrible and and emotional uh, time. So I can just imagine what these other foster parents were going through when there was no need to to remove this child. And they went to court, and I saw the minute order, and the judge just said, give the kid back. But the kid had been in a foster home for over two months away from the... uh, family, which is emotional for, for, for a child. So they did not do a disservice. They did a disservice to the family, and they did a great disservice to the, uh, to the child. Um, but the child is back, and, but it, it was it, incomprehensible, the, the way that they picked up this child, and there's so many other better ways of doing it. But ultimately, what, what I'm sorry? Ultimately, what happened? 
the child is back with the uh, foster parents, and I'm not sure if the adoption has gone through yet, but everything is settled out. But Child Protective Services in this county, um, what's the word I want to, the upheaval, upheaval of, of, of their lives for two months. And that's not fair. Just, and, and my guess is the reason that they removed the, the other child was that they were just afraid that they were going to get sued or something. That's the way they make decisions now. They make it on the terms of litigiousy. Um, if it's really bad, we got to take the kid out. Uh, on, on, let's just put it this way. On cases that are kind of on the cusp, they'll ra they rather remove the child and let the court decide than trying to work with the family and keep the kid if it's possible, keep the kid in the home. And this has happened to me several times, you know, that I've been told, just go pick up the kid. And you know what? That's one of the reasons I retired, because I felt that I was not doing social work. I was just picking up kids and writing court reports, and that's not social work. So the child is okay. So you were a, a CPS social worker with what county? With Riverside County for 14 years. Nine of those years I uh, was an investigating social worker, uh, what they call an ER worker, an emergency response worker. And I was fully trained in all areas of investigation, especially sexual abuse cases and uh, physical abuse cases. So, I mean, I got, I got the gambit of uh, uh, investigations throughout the years. And I was also uh, assigned to two narcotic task forces, one in the Coachella Valley and one here in Western Riverside County. So uh, I'm an expert in methamphetamine, in methamphetamine labs and children that are exposed to methamphetamine. That's why I know the protocols for, for the drug-exposed children. There's specific protocols. And in this last case I was talking about, they just didn't follow the protocols or they don't have protocol. Um, but I'm sure they do, but they, they, did, they certainly didn't follow it in this, this case. Um, and that's another disservice to the child because the child's not getting the full medical treatment that the child may need. And this child that they did remove was special needs, um, the other child. So you have one child that is uh, the baby, which is drug exposed, and you have the other child, which who has, I guess he had speech and problems and problems walking. They were getting some braces. So while they're working all this, they remove the child. So the child was denied services for a while till they got set up again by the other foster home. So it it. It's not social work anymore. In fact, I found uh, some training uh, material, and I was surprised to see that what it did is it just kind of laid out how to do an investigation, what questions to ask, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, that's ridiculous. 
what are you going to do? Come in with a with with a paper and kind of just ask questions and check them off. The the the, the training is is not that good, and the social worker turnover just means that you got all new social workers out there who don't know what they're doing, who are overloaded with cases, and you know the the, the supervisors get overwhelmed and just take the kid. Just, you know, if you're not sure, just take the kid. And that kind of thinking is not what I was trained for. And it's, why do you think that type? Why do you think that type well, of thinking is prevailing with CPS workers? Well, there have been workers in my experience when I was working there, and I really didn't like them. They just removed kids. That's, they figured it was easy, just pick up the kids, write a report, and if, if the court says give the kids back, you give the kids back. Um, nowadays, they don't want the, the, the child in question harmed in any way, and they would rather take the child out of the home rather than working with the family. Now, in California, I don't know about other states, there's an assessment tool. When you're doing an investigation, you're looking for two major things, risk and safety. There is a tool called Strategic Decision Making, SDM, and it's been used by Riverside County for well over 10, 15 years. And this tool is a very good tool. It's reliable and it's and, um, valid over the time, which are two things that you need to have for a test that is validated. Anyway, it's, it's a list and you can go through it while you're there and kind of check off things. And that's an assessment tool that will help you make a decision. It doesn't make the decision for you, but it kind of steers you, you know, it's like, it's like a decision tree. Um, in this last case I was talking about in this other county, their policy is that they do the risk and safety assessment 48 hours after the investigation, which makes no sense because that's not what the tool was designed for. Um, it's it's very interesting. SDM is is actually a great tool, and in addition to the risk and safety, it will also tell you um, what direction to go as far as services for the family, uh, things like that. It's a great tool, and I, I used to love it because when we when I first started, we didn't have that tool. And uh, we had something like it, but it was just a couple pages, and we fill it out at the end. So we didn't really use it as a tool. Now, I know in Riverside County they do. In fact, they use it, yeah, they use it in this other county, but they don't use, it cor they don't use the tool correctly. Um, the other thing that they didn't do in this case, now I'm thinking about it and I'll talk about it, is what they call team decision-making or a TDM, and a TDM is very, very uh, important 
because that is the time that if a child is removed, a team gets together, the, the parents, family, friends, teachers, whoever the parents want to be there, along with the social worker, and they talk about the problem and the solution. You can also do this, and it's a long meeting, but it's, it, they turn out very well, and, and the facilitators are all specifically trained. Um, in this last case, they didn't even – what would happen is if you have a child in a foster home and there's some problems, sometimes you will use a TDM and bring the foster parents in and whatever and try and work it out. They didn't even do that as a preventative measure. Um, so they, they, they misused the, the, the SDM, and they didn't use the, uh, the TDM, the team decision-making. I know it's a lot of letters, but um, – and these are tools that are, are available. I, I'm guessing that it's available in California, although it's a nationwide um, thing, the, uh, the, uh, the decision-making, strategic decision-making. So it, it – um, there are tools out there, but I don't know if they're really being taught how to use correctly. Uh, and as far as social workers, there's just a high rate of turnover. And all you're doing is getting a whole bunch of new workers, and they're, they're not really being trained. It's kind of like, well, shadow this person for a little bit, and, um, you know, you're off because we don't, we have too many referrals and not enough workers to take care of them. So it's, it, it's not the same when I started. We had social workers there who were there 15, 20, 25, 30 years. Uh, nobody stays that long. The burnout rate is so high. Why do you, what, attributes, what attributes to the burnout rate? High caseloads, not enough support. Um, that's, that's it, just high caseloads and not enough support and not enough training. And you get out there and you get frustrated. And, believe, you know, being an investigating social worker is like being a cop. You see things. You see things that you really don't want to see. Um, and there's just a lot of social workers who don't have the stomach for that. And if they want to work cases, they can work cases. But they stick people in emergency response because that's where they have the highest number of cases or referrals because those are coming in every day um, because people are calling the hotline and those have to be disseminated to the social workers. And there's a specific time limit uh, that the social worker has to take some action on the referral. Usually in Riverside County, we had an immediate, which means you've got to go out now, or you have 10 days to go out and begin your investigation. Um, so it, it, there's a time limit, and, and the investigations have to be closed within 30 days. So there's, there's a lot of stress on the workers to complete all the things that they need to do. And as I was leaving the county, 
they were just adding more and more and more paperwork that the social worker had to fill out just to close. It just became overburdened. People become overburdened with, with, the, uh, with the amount of paperwork that goes along with it. Um, not all people can do it. It's, it's, it's a highly stressful job, and I knew people who had worked in there 15 years and all that. I lasted nine years. That's about all I could take, and the reason I left, emergency response, is I was burnt out and I was very tainted. And you can't be a social worker and be tainted. Um, so I can see where people who, and I had a lot of experience when I came into the county, uh, but they just, they, they just don't have the quality of time and training. And they're just not, to, they're not doing social work. They're really, they're really not training them to do social work. They're training them to go out, make an assessment, and, you know, put a Band-Aid on and, and, and go now. And that's not the purpose of Child Protective Services. A lot of people don't like Child Protective Services, uh, but it's a necessary evil. They do, they do make a lot of mistakes, but there are a lot of children out there that are abused and neglected that don't deserve to be in the home that they're in. So uh, a friend of mine was telling me about a house uh, with all these cockroaches. And, you know, she said the, the floor was moving and the, the walls were moving and, you know, the, it smelled so bad. And I go, that's a dirty home smell. And I've been in lots of homes like that. There are a lot of social workers who can't do that or don't want to do that. But they're kind of forced into it because they need social workers in that specific area and they get burnt out. It's not... It's not an easy job. Um, you, you get easy cases sometimes, but the difficult cases are just that. They're, they're very, very difficult. Um, and I don't think that the county is, is uh, spending um, enough on training. Now, a social worker has to have 20 hours of continuing education every year. Um, and that's mandated by the county, and you have to have that. And they keep a record. Um, I always availed myself of, of extra trainings uh, just so I could, you know, make an informed decision and know, or at least know what questions to ask. Um, but I don't think they're doing that anymore. I think they just throw them out there and say, oh, go get them. Go get them, Tiger. Here's someone who's going to show you the ropes for a little while, but then... You're out on your own. And a lot of these kids, a lot of these social workers, I should say, are just coming out of their master's program or their bachelor's program, and they've never done this before. They, they have zero experience with working with children and families. I mean, they have a little bit of internship time, and it's basically book work. So, and book work is great, but that's not the real world. <laughs> so when they get out there, I guess they get a really big shock. It's not what they anticipated or thought? No. 
I, I think people don't. At least going to emergency response, the investigation, I don't think that workers really, or new workers really understand what they're getting into. I was, when I first got hired, I was supposed to go into emergency response, but I was assigned to the, what they call the back end, where I took care of cases that were adjudicated in court. But during that time, uh, one of my partners was doing standby callback, uh, and he would call me, and I would go out, and he trained me. Um, so by the by the end of the, the my first year, um, I was ready for ER. I knew what to expect. Um, I knew about going out in the middle of the night. I knew about all that kind of stuff, and I was fairly fairly confident and confident and myself when I first started doing investigations. But I don't think that's the case anymore. And that's when you get into trouble. Because you basically what you're doing is you're giving you give your information to your supervisor who is supposed to confer with you. And if they can't make a decision, it goes up to the assistant manager and the regional manager and up and up and up. In this last case, there were no notes. There were no written notes by the supervisor, which is mandated. Um, but supervisors have their own pressure because they're supervising five or six workers who have maybe 10, 15 cases. So add that up. So they're responsible for their workers and their cases. Um, and, and again, because because the society that we live in, they don't want to make mistakes, and they will err on the side of caution every time. And I, I just don't understand why they do that, because that's not best practices of social work. Uh, and, and, and it bothers me. Now, I'm not saying that every social worker is a bad social worker, just like not every cop is a bad cop. Um, but the number of workers that are newly hired have very little or zero training, and they get thrown out into a field um, that if you're not prepared for it, I mean, if, if I was not prepared for doing uh, the investigations, uh, some of the first investigations, I, I would have walked away. I would say, I can't do this. Put me back in the back end. I can't do this. Um, it's a whole different so line of social work because you, you're kind of a social worker and a detective at the same time. And a lot of people don't. A lot of social workers want to do social work and can't think in terms of doing an investigation. And they don't know what questions to ask, and they, they mess things up. And those are the kind of cases that I get from you when the social workers and the supervisors just either err on the side of caution or just err in their decisions. But basically, my belief is that children should be safely maintained in their home unless there's exigent circumstances 
with, with grave safety and, and risk to the child. That's when you remove a child. When you're looking around the, child, the house and you go, I'm sorry, there's no food, there's no, you know, the ba- you don't have the basics, you know, it looks like you're doing drugs, um, you don't have a, 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 you know, a bed for the baby, and, you, you know, you don't have the basic needs. That would be the time that I may remove the child and um, say you have so many days to clean this up and we'll bring the child back. Or do you have a relative that the child can stay with for a few days while you you remediate these problems? And if you remediate these problems, we'll just put the child back and we'll call it a wash. Um, But they don't... They don't like to do that anymore. I, I had a, a case, and it was uh, we here, here in Riverside County. We have a lot of Native Americans because we have all the tribes around here. And I went to a house, and and it was filthy. I mean, filthy, filthy. And rather than taking the kids, I just said it's a relative, and she says, "Yeah, we have an auntie just right up the street because they they all live in the same area." went to talk to the aunt. Aunt said she'd take the kid. I went to the aunt's house. I looked at the situation. The house was nice and all that. I said, you take the kid. I'm not going to take the kid from you. But to the parents, you only you have three days. I'll be back in three days. And if it's not cleaned up, then I'm going to take your child because then I have a probable cause. Well, they cleaned up the house. I came back and I said, okay, great. Child can go back, and that was it. Problem solved. Child was never in foster care, and we resolved the the, the issue. Um, there's always alternatives to taking children, um, unless again there's exigency or the the risk and safety to the child is is too great to leave in the home. But other than that, you know, removing children and making them go through the court process and all that um, is emotionally damaging to these kids. Uh, I've worked in foster care homes. I've worked in foster family agencies. And I used to run group homes. So I'm very familiar with the type of kids that come into the system. so, you know, it, it, I wish there was better training, and I wish there was, was just better training. You know, train them, tell them what it's all about, no shock, no surprises, um, and let, they do, let them do their jobs. It's a mess. It's a mess. And there are actually some supervisors um, that I've witnessed just tell a worker, go pick up the kid. And they didn't want to pick up the kid. Just like the reason that I left the county is they said, pick up this kid. I said, I don't want to pick up the kid because the, ki- or the kids, because even though the mom is having problems with their drug program, the kids are going to school and the house is okay and all that. Oh, go pick up the kid. And I left after that. I said, I can't do this. This is not social work. So... That's 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 my story for the day. You know, I want to tell you a quick story because we're running out of time. But 
a couple of months ago, I was uh, invited to go to um, Cal State Long Beach uh, to be on a panel. And the audience members were undergraduates and graduates, graduate students who, um, you know, were studying social work. A mm-hmm. number of these, a number of the students in the class, um, or in the audience, were also doing internships at various uh, CPS agencies: Los Angeles, Orange County. Um, I think somebody was in San Bernardino. But it was, you know, it was pure academia. And there were other panel yeah. members, you know, who were there. Uh, some you know, social workers, some former social workers. Um, and then, you know, there was me. Uh, and I got asked several um, interesting questions. One person who was interning, and I think he said he was interning for CPS in Orange County, asked me or told me basically in a statement type question, you know, I basically why do you think social workers lie? He says, I don't see any incentive for them to lie. And, uh, you know, there were some chuckles from the audience, but, um, you know, I, I, I basically, you know, didn't know how to respond to him because I realized that he, you know, being a college student, you know, getting his master's in social work, and although he was a quote-unquote intern, I don't think that he was has been fully exposed to what really goes out on in the field for social workers. And I told them, and I don't think anybody in the in the room knew of this, but um, you remember Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was governor of California? Yeah. Well, one of one of the first things Governor Schwarzenegger did was he, um, and I think it was the Hoover Commission, asked the Hoover Commission to investigate all of these complaints um, about CPS social workers, you know, doing things that were wrong or violated the rights of, you know, the citizens of California. And I think they actually did two reports, but I think you can Google it. I remember reading in the report that, in the nicest and most politically correct way, one of the conclusions of the commission was the financial incentives were placed in the wrong, I guess, were, were focused on the wrong thing. In mm-hmm. other words, the financial incentives were for the CPS worker to take the child and place the child in foster care, and the financial incentives were not, you know, focused on keeping the family together. Right. And what the what the report concluded in the nicest way was, we have to change that, because you know, basically, when we change financial incentives, we change conduct out in the field. Right. Unfortunately, right. And, and Schwarzenegger hasn't been governor for what. A, couple decades maybe unfortunately unfortunately, none of that was ever taken to heart 
in my opinion, and none of that was ever changed. And I think things are probably at the height of being worse than ever before. Social workers and counties enjoy much more money from the federal government. They have much more power. They're believed um, more so by juvenile court judges than, you know, the parents or the family members, you know, on a overall, I mean, that's only my, you know, personal right. experience or opinion. Well, well, let me, and, let me, let you know, I would, for, oh. I, okay. I, I'm just, I, what I was going to say is that, that the money is, money comes from the federal government and goes to the state. Now, Child Protective Services, their main source of income are these investigations. And the reason for the end of the 30 days that I was talking about is that the funding for that investigation runs out of 30 days. So they don't want you to continue with the investigation after 30 days because you're working for free. So yes, yes. Financial incentives are terrible. So I was in a county. Uh, it wasn't Los Angeles County, but I was in another county, and I was doing a trial. And one of the witnesses from the family said something like, everybody knows that there's financial incentives for them, CPS, to take children. Now, I don't know how this witness knew that or figured it out or whatever. And the court, the judge, I don't know if it was during this, during the questioning, but at some point on the record, the judge said, that's all, um, basically, I, I can't, I can't, don't want to misquote the judge, but something to the effect that you know, that's not true. Mm-hmm. There are no financial yeah. incentives. And I was kind of flabbergasted. I didn't know what to say or what to do when the judge said that. But that, that is, I think, the prevailing theory uh, that these cases are on the up and up and that, you know, social workers don't really lie. Or at least that's how I see the rulings. Um I did a case one time in Los Angeles County where it was very clear in the report, the social worker wrote a report that said the the child's therapist, the minor's therapist said ABC. And it was a very detrimental statement to my client. And my client kept harping on it that the social, the um, therapist never said that to the social worker. So she said it so many times, and I so I, I called up the therapist and I said, "Hey, you know, I just want to let you know, I'm subpoenaing you to court um, on this issue. Did you ever, you know, tell the social worker that?" And um, the, the therapist says, "Well, no, I never told her that." And I kind of cut her off. I said, "Okay, well, have the subpoena come to court." She comes to court, gets on the stand, and I ask her, "Did you ever tell the social worker that?" Right, and she said, "No, I never right. said that to the social worker." And and I kind of left it at that. But then somebody questioned her on cross examination, 
and I can't remember exactly, but it might have even been the judge. Somebody said, well, if you didn't tell the social worker that, what did you tell the social worker? <laughs> and here's the classic. This is unbelievable. The therapist says, well, I didn't tell the social worker anything. I've never met her. I've never talked to her on the phone. Um, I know you're, I know you're laughing, but unfortunately that happens quite a bit. Either social workers will, um, embellish or they will flat out lie. Um, in fact, one of the cases I worked with you, um, the social worker lied on, on, on the stand. You know, I just don't understand right. that. Right. That you was know. the case we were involved with. Uh-huh. That was the case. And when the social worker yeah, admitted that she lied in her deposition, the tenor of that civil rights case changed completely. In other words, they, yeah. they went from, the social worker's attorney went from telling me, you have a worthless case to, hey, let's settle this case. Yeah. Yeah. And and the reason I like working for you is that when I can do a, a report from you, they, uh, in other words, they have, they have less to argue with. Um, so I hope I benefit you and I hope I benefit your clients. Um, oh, you do but great. I, I, you do great work. Uh, you know, what I want you to do, because we're running out of time, Terry, tell people, because there may be some attorneys here in California or in other states who may be listening, um, and, and, you know, clients who may need your services to come testify in the juvenile dependency court or in a, subs- in a later court, like a federal civil rights case, give them your name, address, email, all that stuff, telephone number, so they can contact you. Okay. Uh, my name is Terry Greenstein, G-R-E-E-N-S-T-E-I-N. My company is T, capital T-E-G Consultant. It is lowercase T-E-G org for my website. And my phone number is 951-236-236. Seven, nine. People can call me. I've been getting a bunch of phone calls from people listening to this show. Um, I love helping people out. Um, if it's a quick question, I will help you. If you want to set up a time for a consultation, I will do that too. I will go to family law court. Um, I will go to uh, probate court for legal guardianship. Um, just about, and, uh, just about any, any court. Um, so people call me, I'm here, I'm available. There's no one else. I don't think there's anybody else who does what I do. Um, so give me a call if you're having a problem with child protective services and I can maybe help you out. So Terry, thank you for calling in. I appreciate it. And we're going to have to end the show today. We've run out of time. Hope everyone that's on the line, uh, we'll see you next week on the radio. Thank you, Vince.